Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news. I am launching a Substack. I know. I keep telling you how I'm not a writer, and I'm still not a writer, but I am going to be writing about reading over on Substack. The Substack is called Unstacked, and you can find it at tracythomas.substack.com. There will be free options every Friday. There'll be a bunch of weekly roundups, announcements, all the shit I'm into. And then if you want to upgrade yourself to the paid subscription, I'm going to have author interviews, bonus episodes, anticipated reads, book pairings, community chats, all sorts of stuff. So, If that sounds like something you'd be into, go to tracythomas.substack.com and join Unstacked. And of course, I've got a special offer for you. If you go to tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10, you get 10% off your first year membership of Unstacked. You have from now until April 4th to redeem. Again, that's tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10 for 10% off Unstacked. Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome to The Stacks, a podcast about books and the people who read them. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas, and our guest today is Roger Bennett from the Men in Blazers podcast and TV show, and the author of the New York Times number one bestseller, Reborn in the USA, An Englishman's Love Letter to His Chosen Home. Today on the show, we explore what it means to be American if you're not born in the United States, the ways the dreams of our youth change as we get older, and of course, we talk a little sucker. The Stacks Book Club pick for August is Emergency Contact by Mary H.K. Choi. We'll be discussing the book on the show on Wednesday, August 25th with Juliet Littman. If you love the Stacks and want to support the show, please consider joining the Stacks Pack on Patreon. You earn perks like our monthly virtual book club and shout outs on the show. But more important than that, there is no show without the generosity of the Stacks Pack. So if you like what you hear, please head to patreon.com slash the Stacks and join this awesome bookish community. Thank you to our newest members of the Stacks Pack, Amanda Cervantes, Shannon, Christina, and Alex Henson. I really, really cannot thank you all enough. All right, now let's get to my conversation with Raj Bennett. All right, everybody, I'm so excited. I'm here with Roger Bennett, author of Reborn in the USA. I have to ask, can I call you Raj or do I have to call you Roger? Tracy Thomas, you can call me whatever you like. It's a joy to be with you. I'm genuinely giddy and excited. I'm excited to have you. I know on your podcast, Men and Blazers, they call you Raj. So I feel like I know you as Raj. And so writing emails about you to your team and saying Roger a lot, I was like, do these people know that he goes by Raj in my heart? (laughs) <laughs> only, only, only my mother calls me Roger, and only when I'm in trouble. Like okay. when, when, when someone uses the full name Roger, it's an awful name. Just a genuine. I write about this in the book. It's just a horrible, horrible. I feel no emotional connection to it. It's like my parents' desperate desire for us to feel deeply English. They gave us like my brother's actually called Nigel, which is possibly even worse. If there is one name. <laughs> Worse than Roger, it's Nigel. But it's like those. It's like calling your kid Harvey or Melvin in America. It's like picking a name that was popular in the nineteen forties and the nineteen fifties in an effort to fit in. So Tracy Thomas, you can call me whatever you want. Okay, I'm gonna call you Raj. Um, okay, so this is where we always start. It's sort of we're gonna talk a lot about the book, so don't feel pigeonholed with this one. But in about thirty seconds or so, can you just tell the folks about your book? 
I can do nothing in 30 seconds, Chase Thomas. That's amazing. <laughs> when I did the book acknowledgements, I said, I wrote, I said, the, the whole book is essentially an acknowledgement section. So I'm going to keep this short. And then and I then went it was on so for long. 14 pages. So, <laughs> so 30 seconds is incredibly tough. I will say, I wrote the book in COVID, uh, lockdown in Manhattan, the city that I'd had painted on my bedroom wall, dreamt of moving to as a kid. And while the city was turned inside out into chaos and human darkness, that led to the Black Lives Matter summer, the trauma and agony of that, and then obviously into the toxicity of the the 2020 elections. And the American idea has always been the center of my life. I've organized everything around it. And in the present chaos, I returned into the past to a lot of joy in the past, but I wanted to retrace my love of America and the contours of that love, which is enormous. I always joke that Kenny Powers does not love as America as much as I love America. And I wanted to retrace the footsteps of every uh, ounce of that love and hold it up to the light of day. So it's a love letter to America, Tracy, at a time I think our nation could really do with one. Yeah, at a time that I think a lot of people are not super in love with our country, for sure. Um, I'm curious about why you chose to tell this part of your story, because the book is from your youth, sort of up until high school age. And then then you come to America for good. So I'm curious why tell the part of the story before you're actually in the States. There's the American idea. And there's the American reality. Mm. Um, and I wanted to really examine in this book the construction of the American idea. I grew up in Liverpool in the 1980s, a magnificent city, but a city uh, was just fallen on terribly dark times. The whole north of England under Margaret Thatcher was laid waste to as the south rose at the north's expense and the coal mines shut down and the steel mills and the uh, uh, the cotton in Manchester. And Liverpool was the once great port that had no purpose. No, there was no, We had no industry. There was no need for a port. Unemployment soared. Um, a heroin epidemic gripped the city. There was hopelessness everywhere. And, you know, I survived. If you've seen Billy Elliot, you, you kind of get the picture. He was a great ballet dancer, me not so much. And I survived... <laughs> by telling myself I was an American trapped in a English boy's body. And I just feasted upon every piece of American culture, the movies, books, television shows, uh, the music, every kind of music, Chicago Bears, Super Bowl winning team. And um, it gave me a sense of courage and hope and joy and that life could be lived in glorious technicolor, whereas mine felt like it was lived in black and white. And I wanted to examine that, Tracy, that construction of an idea, a perception of America lived uh, without ever setting foot in the land. And that is really the, 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 the main narrative of the book. And now that you've been here for, for longer than you were in Liverpool and you became a citizen in 2018, I believe you say in the book, I'm wondering how it holds up. Like, how do you navigate falling in love with a place as a young person who I'm assuming you weren't super plugged into the politics of Reagan's America and the ways that so much of what you didn't like about Liverpool were happening to so many Americans at the time? Um, I'm from Oakland, which we talked about before we started, which was going through so so much similar, you know, we were the crime capital of the of the country and this and that. So I'm wondering now, like as an adult, as you reflect back on it, how does it hold up? Does it hold up anywhere? Like what, or does it hold up everywhere? What do you, what are your feelings? I'd say, I'd say that the, it's a twofold answer. 
And the fir- the first is, you know, I came to America for the first time when I was 15 to the northern suburbs of Chicago. It's a lot of what the book's about, a trip that changed my life. Right. Um, you know, it was very much like, I mean, God, the northern suburbs was the canvas that John Hughes used to paint his movies. I'd never been there before, but when I landed, it felt like I had been there. I felt like I knew <laughs> it. You know, even the water tower uh, from his movies was just there in front of me. Glencoe, Northbrook, Highland Park. Um, it was, it was, a, it, it, when I, all I can say is, and I wrote about this in depth in the book, um, you know, I, I met the Chicago bears, I hung out <laughs> in the bleachers. I, I mean, it was all life, Art Institute Chicago, it was all life changing. And when Ferris Bueller's Day Off came out, um, it felt like a serious documentary of my time there as opposed to a light rom-com <laughs> comedy. Uh, I was like, that was, that's what I did. I did all of that. That's, yeah. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, I did that too. So like America... You know, it was 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 remarkable. It was there that I met the Chicago Bears, and one of them, William Refrigerator Perry, in my mind, told me to move to America. I'm sure he had no such intention, but <laughs> that set me on my course. And I did come back as soon as I could, uh, right after college, and moved to Chicago, which is a place that my family have always always meant to move to when they left Eastern Europe, but got off the boat at the wrong stop in family myth and ended up in Liverpool uh, because my great great grandfather my great grandfather saw the one tall building on the Liverpool skyline thought he was in New York and we <laughs> never made it to Chicago where he was headed I did make it um, and the reality is I mean the, the, why I wrote the book was that the reality was incredibly dark and challenged and the twofold answer is when you have become a new American, when you have stood in a courtroom with 162 other Americans, and I write this in in the book, with 42 different countries, um, and you share stories with them after saying the oath of allegiance, it's it's to hear their stories about escaping famine, civil war, conflict, worse. And and, the, and how the idea of America just animated their lives, gave them hope, gave them courage, gave them a sense of uh, uh, of confidence and joy and possibility. Then, and I encourage each of your listeners, you can, anyone can go to a naturalization ceremony. It's a beautiful, incredible, uh, human, wonderful thing. And that, to me, is the, the most powerful moment where you feel that sense of optimism, that sense of wonder, that sense of immigrant wonder that... Um, that is deeply, deeply American. But that is the American idea. And the American reality, as your question um, suggests, is, is, is filled with challenge. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the, the second part of the answer is the American idea for me was one that was born in my youth. I wrote a whole bloody book about it in great detail, right. Human Wonder and Joy. The American reality is a very different thing. Both of them are filled with love for me. But one is a childish love, which is simple and just pure and blind. Um, And then an adult love. And anyone who is in love listening to your podcast will know this. Adult love is hard, bloody work. Mm -hmm. It is hard, bloody work. And the object of whatever you love, whoever, and I've not met them, but I can guarantee this, they are not perfect. They have (laughs) strengths and they have weaknesses. And I, I feel that love so bloody deeply, absolutely and completely, but it's an adult love now. Um, and so with every ounce of my energy, you know, I, I, the, the epigraphs of books are such weird things. You use somebody else's words to introduce your own. And they're normally much better than anything that follows. And in my case, they definitely are because it was deeply humbling to use the words of the great American poet Langston Hughes 
when he wrote, Oh, let America be America again, the land that never has been yet and yet must be. Mm. And, I, and I offered the book up in, 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 that, in that spirit, Tracy, in that, um, you know, there's the American idea, there's the American reality, and I hope the book is written in the spirit of somebody who wants to close the gap and work with every ounce of his energy to close the gap between the two. Yeah, I love that. I think that that I think that the epigraph is so brilliant, and I've heard you on other interviews talk about it. So I know um, that it was really, it was really like sort of your guide. It seems like it was sort of your guidepost in writing the book, and sort of like your guiding light that you that you come back to. And I think that that is not everyone's book is that true for. Um, it's a weird thing, though, the epigraph. Yeah. It really is. You are literally using someone else's words to sum up or introduce or kind of catalyze your book. But no, they are always. And it is in my case. I mean, just it, it, my rest, everything that follows is completely in the shadow of the spirit of um, of those three lines. Yeah. I, I'm curious about the memoir writing part of it, because I feel like you are someone who's in the public light very much, though, mostly talking about soccer and or football, depending <laughs> on where you're listening from. I'm cool. I know the slang, you know, I know the the lingo. But writing a memoir is sort of a totally different thing than talking about other people. <laughs> on the pitch. Right. Um, so I'm wondering, and what I've learned from this podcast is like so many folks who write memoirs talk about sort of getting vulnerable and reflecting on themselves and on, on where, who they were at the time of the right or the time that the book takes place. So I'm wondering how you sort of reflected on your past mistakes or, or past, I mean, there's lots of sex in the book or attempted attempts at sex. Terrible <laughs> sex. Terrible, <laughs> there's terrible a lot of sex. desire for sex. There's a lot of like boy, girl, desire, awkwardness. And I'm wondering sort of how you reflected on that sort of stuff before you actually put it in the book. Yeah, there wasn't a lot of reflecting. You're overestimating my uh, my ability to change topics. Look, the first part of your question says, you know, you talk about soccer. Now you're talking about life. And honestly, soccer and life are the one and the same for me. Mm. My anyone who listens to our podcast or our television show, to me, soccer is life. That's why I watch it. It's not a sport. Twenty-two men or women trying to kick a, a ball around the field, score a goal. There's smarter people than me to talk about the tactics or the mentality. You know, it's people have won things who can talk about that. But my tiny niche is uh, Albert Camus. Um, who was a great goalkeeper in his day before he was a writer, is alleged to have said, and I like to believe it's true, he said, everything that I know about um, uh, humani- the motivations of human beings, I learned through watching football. Mm-hmm. And I believe that deeply, that ultimately the joy of football is for me that there's 22 human beings making human decisions, whether they pass, run or shoot, under conditions of hysterical stress with the world watching, as we've just seen with England and the Euros. Mm-hmm. And that's what I find fascinating. It, it, football is only about sport in the same way as Animal Farm is about horses and pigs on the surface. Like All of life, uh, desire, dreams, hope, shattered hope, uh, fulfillment, glory, uh, agony, all of that is trapped in there. It's why I love sports, because those are things I think most normal people feel in real life, but I'm dead to inside. And sports allows me to feel those things. Right. So I, to me, sports is life, uh, particularly international sports where two teams take the field, their nation's history and culture and current politics take the field alongside of them. 
So to me, it's like one and the same. Football is life. My memoir is life. Human emotion. And to give your question, you know, a, a true, honest answer about the vulnerability, I, we have we have guests on my show. We're very honoured. You know, it's a real array of human beings. Um, and like Ali, the NBA player, Aaron Rodgers, JJ Watt from the NFL, DeAndre Hopkins, and they all come on. And I'm actually more fascinated for them to talk about life than I am mm-hmm. to talk about this. They talk about their sport, their craft all the bloody time. And so it's just using that same methodology. Tell me about life and applying it to myself. And one of our regular guests is John Green, the writer, mm-hmm. um, who I admire greatly. And the thing I admire about him is his willingness to be utterly vulnerable. And I do think after COVID, after this past 17 months we've had, Tracy Thomas, what what choice do we have now? It's the only way forward for to be candid, I think, for all of us is to be really, really bloody vulnerable. Otherwise, other, I mean, there's two pathways for us all as a nation and as as humanity. We can either be vulnerable. We've all suffered. Right. Many, many people have truly, truly, truly suffered. Um and there's been human agonies in, in ways that I can't even imagine. But all we can do now is lead, I hope, with, with our vulnerabilities uh, just for the good of the future. Yeah. One of the things you mentioned earlier and you talk about in the, in the what do they call, epilogue of your book is um, that you wrote this during COVID and that you, you know, were watching this whole summer that's like this racial reckoning moment. And I'm wondering how that, I know that you talk about in the epilogue that your friend Jamie and you get on the phone, sort of the last little bit of the book and you, and you're sort of like, was it all a lie? And he's like, no, we need dreams. Like we need something, even our children's selves, like our past selves, we need that. But I'm wondering like, as you're writing this book and reflecting on your youth and your love of America and you're in the present watching so much as you mentioned, suffering and disparity and and people coming to terms with privilege and all this stuff. Did that shape your feelings about America or did you have any epiphanies or, or, or feelings that came up that were new from the last 18 months? I mean, this, so the, there's three different parts of the last of the year of writing. And it was the, the outbreak of COVID um, the Black Lives Matter summer, and then into the toxicity of the election. Mm. Um, and so I started writing. I, I I grew up in Liverpool. America was this this escape, um, which is a very common thing I've learned in the release of the book. I've had so many Americans be like, "Oh my god." You dreamt of moving to America. Um, you know, I grew up in LA and I love the Smiths and I spent my whole time just wishing I grew up in Salford outside of Manchester like that. And I realized, you know, my first response when it happened the first time, I was like, oh my God, you dodged a bullet, man. You really wouldn't have survived a minute in Salford outside of Manchester. But but then I realized it's happened over and over again. But I think we often romanticize that which we are not. It's like a teen adolescent yeah. uh, impulse when you are... When you are young and you are trapped in an identity and whatever in class that's hard to shape, you know, you dream of an old alternate you. I did. I dreamt of an alterna Rodge who was cool mm-hmm. and funny um, and people laughed at his jokes and, you know, he was, you know, socially capable um, in a way that I was, uh, I was probably not. <laughs> and, and, and lots of people have that impulse, that desire to start again. I just happen to have acted upon mine. Right. Um, and so... 
on my bedroom wall i had painted it was a terrible painting there's a photograph of it in the book um the manhattan skyline if you look at the photograph it actually is more accurately a depiction of warsaw in the 1960s it does but the, you know i i told myself it was Same manhattan difference. skyscrapers yeah it's manhattan skyscrapers and uh, every night i would go to bed and just fix my curtains so the light shone uh, directly onto the statue of liberty's face lady liberty's face and so america was this place that i longed to be in manhattan uh, in particular, and God, I, I actually somehow I'm still not quite sure made it there, and 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 then COVID just overtook the streets of Manhattan, and this is hard to remember from the perspective of today. It was the city was just shuttered. I mean, it was devastating, and in those first three months, late March, April, May, it was it, no one knew what was going on. There was just a deep fear of, of chaos and the unknown and a devastation. And to have the city that I've dreamt about be overrun, that's the impulse that led me to write the book. I wanted, that's like in that moment where, you know, I'd get up really bloody early and normally the sun rising over Broadway outside my apartment was so thrilling. It's something I never take for granted. It's like a, it's like a, you know, the opening of a, of a play, their first scene, the lights go on and the city starts right. to get, and I love that. But to know that the COVID was crackling all around those streets really, uh, led me to write the bloody book and then into the Black Lives Matter summer where I would, you know, I did turn to my wife and I was like, oh my God, like, what am I doing? What? I'm about to bring out a book about, oh, a love letter to America right. at this time of agony and trauma. And that fear, to be honest, during the election, um, I mean, I was like, where was this book going to live if the election went a certain mm -hmm. way. Was it only going to be lauded on Newsmax and OANN? <laughs> uh, you know, um, right. and so so I, I felt more than anything a deep fear and a deep uh, trepidation. Um, bringing out a book in in twenty twenty one is such a ridiculous thing to do. Anyway, I mean, it's like doing a masterpiece on a side of a grain of rice. Like <laughs> no one really gives a crap anymore about books. Well, don't apart say from that. You, Tracy I, Thomas. I, I do. <laughs> I love you. That's why I adore you in your podcast. But the reality is, like, the world is not, the world wants um, the, the cultural mechanisms. A book is a bloody hard thing to put out in the world. It is a bloody um, hard thing to put out in the world. And, um, and I was terrified, genuinely. I had no idea what the reaction would be. I didn't know how it would be received. A nut job coming out with a love letter after everything we've been through in the past 17 months. Um, and I'd say I think it's a I, I think it's a depiction of a fairly nuanced love. I hope it's a depiction of a fairly nuanced love, and the way it's been received by Americans, uh, you know, as a new American, um, has been has been truly humbling. It's not only been received well; it was a number one New York Times instant New York Times bestseller. So let's not pretend like it was received well. It was received incredibly well, which does not surprise me because I know that you are so beloved by so many people. I had told a few people that I was going to interview you and they were like, Raj? And I was like, yeah. They were like, oh my God, including my brother, who's a big soccer fan. And when I told him I was going to interview you, his first thing he said back to me was, ask him why he wants to be American because I didn't get it. And then he goes five minutes later, I've thought about it. And I also would love to be British. So I totally get it, which speaks to what, what you were what, saying before. What, what's his name? Brady. Oh, Brady. Shout out to Brady. I'll turn a Rog. <laughs> But the 
other question that I was going to ask is, speaking of you wanting to be American as a kid, do your American kids want to be British at all? Are they like, do they walk around like imitating your accent? Like, do they have any interest or are they like, no, super not cool because of my dad? Such a great question, Tracy Thomas. Like, Liverpool is a magnificent city. It is incredible. And, you know, I moved to Chicago at the first opportunity right out of university. And I love the place um, because it's a city of dreamers and hucksters and big talkers. You know, everyone, mm-hmm. it's a city that has no reason to be there unless you are making it big you have to dream big dreams to be in the middle of nowhere to build that city it takes like it takes some takes some incredible chutzpah and liverpool is the same like even in hard times it's a city of storytellers and comedians and 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 human beings who dream we look out to sea and we dream that we dream anything's possible even when there's human darkness um that surrounds us and so liverpool is an incredible city um it, 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 when I was a kid, I write this in the book, it actually debated, the city council debated seeding from the rest of England mm-hmm. and becoming a republic, um, the Republic of Liverpool, which is an idea, frankly, I love. Um, <laughs> and so when we go there, my, my, all my family are still there. I'm very, very proudly uh, there. Um, my kids love it. They think it's like Disneyland. They, they prefer to go there than Disneyland. I mean, it's a crazy place. You just walk down the street, there'll be a naked man just trotting <laughs> alongside for no reason. So it's, a, it's just a, you go to the football and it's just human beings all around are swearing profusely. It's a child's dream of human wonder. And so it's a fascinating thing for me. Um, my kid, my youngest kid, Ozzy, uh, wrote a book report for school where he had to do a little author's bio. And he wrote, Ozzy Bennett is a British American. Mm. And then there were a couple of other lines. And I was like, I looked at it. I was like, holy crap. You know, Britain is a complicated place. Um, the football team from there, you know, this three, it's, it's, the football team became a very brave face of the nation. Uh, but in, in, in defeat, you saw the darkness of the nation, the racism of the nation, the misogyny of the nation, the hatred of the nation. You know, a lot of the things I, I moved um, that, that kind of propelled me out of there. Um, so when I read that, Aussie Bennett is a British American, I turned to my wife, I was like, what the? What's, <laughs> I don't define like that. And, you know, I'm like, I think Kenny Powers, an American-American. And what I realized in that heartbeat and I do actually write this in the end of the book. You know, this is my story. This is my American story. And I said to my kids in the book, the end of the book, they don't read books and I'll never see this. But I said, I hope you write your story on your own, in your own way, in your own style and better than mine. And so if that's what they want. But I also realized doing this book, um, ultimately, kids want difference. We all want to be singular. Right. And to me, my Americanness, this myth that my family were meant to be in Chicago, that my great grandfather had set out for there, but by mistake had got off the boat in Liverpool instead of New York. And so we've been stranded. I was meant to be mm-hmm. in America. That made me feel different. And I think the British Americanness, you know, is what made my kids feel different. And in that moment, Godspeed to them. Yeah. I also think it's interesting that you define yourself as an American, no hyphen. Cause I think many people who are immigrants to this country or people who have come here or even, you know, first or second generation, they do include the hyphen. And so that was always something that really interested me. I don't know if you had thinking behind it or you just felt like that was, you just wanted to go straight up American, no follow up. 
<laughs> I like that. So I, I'm going to put my next passport and the straight up American, no follow up. That sounds like, that sounds like my debut album when I bring it out. It sounds like something Phil Collins would bloody do. Just add me it to the, the acknowledgements. Follow-up. I just want to yeah, be in your super it. long acknowledgements. Oh my God. You, Tracy Thomas, how are you not in my, I'm almost embarrassed. I know I hadn't met you until today, but every, almost everybody else is in my, it's true. I was a, my a little left out. I got to be honest. <laughs> I wanted to ask about also, this is my last question about you and Americanness, and then we're going to talk about the writing of your book, but that could be a lie and I could ask more things. I never know what I'm going to do, <laughs> um, but I do want to know about uh, you being an American in an Englishman's body because you say it all the time. You talk about it in the book. I've heard you say it on interviews. I would love for you to define for my audience and for me what that means because I there, there's so many ways that could go. I'd love to know what these so many ways are. I'm quite fascinated. Well, like what it is to me, like what being American means to you when you were not yet American. Because to me, like as an American, being American for me means I'm from America. And like a lot of the American things I don't particularly feel connected to as a black woman. So I'm just curious, sort of like what the American things that you were holding on to that you felt like were who you were, even though you were born in a different place, if that makes yeah. sense. Yeah, I mean, I, I want to be clear. I fully understand what you're saying. Um, yeah, the, the Chuck Klosterman, God bless that man, blurred my book and mm-hmm. said something far smarter than I ever could. He said, um, he said what Roger Bennett felt uh, was an illusion, um, but the book is a reminder that perception is not merely a form of historical reality. Perception is all that we have. So my sense of Americanness in that moment, that self-deception, that trick, you know, that trick when you're being beaten up, when you're in a school, which is, you know, the teachers are just kicking the crap out of you. I mean, we would, it was a gray gardens with, with, with sadistic <laughs> teachers who were teaching a curriculum that was formed around the end of the first world war, who would thrash you. They really lived to beat the crap out of us. Right. You know, you get, and you go home, um, having been caned, they called it. You go home bleeding and your mum wouldn't be like, oh my God, what happened to you? She'd just be like, oh, Roger, have you been naughty again? (laughs) And so life was confusing, deeply complicated. Liverpool was falling apart. I mean, that that context is really bloody important. Liverpool was, you know, I felt like I could stand on the street corner and if I stared long enough, I could see the city decomposing Mm. before my very eyes. So... America was in my mind, that mind, having watched these shows, you know, you watching Miami Vice, watching Don Johnson wearing colors that hadn't even been invented in England yet. Teal. Mm-hmm. I remember like what I was saying to my mom, I was like, what is that color he's wearing? She's like, oh, I don't know. Never seen it before, love. And this guy, this guy wearing just like periwinkle, wearing, wearing pastels. Um, I, I, I've talked about in, in the book how he would go on you know, the, the most fearsome shootout of his life and everyone else would be strapping on the Kevlar and the helmets. And he'd be like, no, no. Why would you wear that when you can wear linen pants pleated with no socks, espadrilles and have a blazer with your sleeves rolled up? And I watched that. And the Americanness of that, Tracy, was this was a man who had a singular style, was different to all those around him. And was willing to commit to that completely and utterly. And so I took that, watching Miami Vice, again, only on the surface mm-hmm. was it about um, the, the Knox in, um, in, 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 in Florida. To me, it was, a, it was communicating purely to me as a 14-year-old confused boy how to be in the world. Mm. The Chicago Bears, 
you know, the NFL started to be broadcast. English football was a backwater, muddy backwater hooligan culture. You go to the game and just see human beings kick the crap out of each other. That's why they went to the game. And the NFL started to be broadcast. And it was just like laughter, entertainment. The New Orleans Saints that year were like 14 and 0. And instead, I was like, go and beat the crap out of the Atlanta Falcons fans. That's what you meant. <laughs> instead, they put paper bags on their heads called themselves the New Orleans Aints and just laughed and just made a, you know, turned around and just turned it into a thrilling moment that I've not forgotten. And when uh, the Chicago Bears were a team that had been terrible for decades, terrible, self-sabotaging, awful. And I started to watch them when the NFL was broadcast, obviously thinking I was in Chicago and they were my team. My timing was great because <laughs> after years of self-sabotage, they finally... You know, Walter Payton, the greatest bear ever to play, made the most out of his career by turning themselves into a, a, a hard, living, smash-mouthed, uh, boasting, backing up those boasts with biblical smitings of every opponent team. Um, and again, what was the Americanness to me, Tracy? It was that taught me watching the, the identity they had, losers, perpetual losers, was not you didn't have to be what you were you could transform yourself into mm. something entirely different so each of these things so tracy chapman each of these things ah. run dmc they they each of them just spoke to me you know obviously from afar it, within my own context and i took life lessons from from each of them and all of them shaped me in deeply profound ways so lacing together the the collective sum of all these lessons. That to me was what I called Americanness. Hmm, I like that. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day, and it makes me feel nourished and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. The nutritional insurance that AG1 provides has been vital to keeping me productive and focused. It helps me cover my bases in just about the time it takes to fill a glass of water, scoop in one scoop of AG1, and then drink it. So I don't know, 75 seconds? With the perfect mix of vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from Whole Foods, I'm not stuck trying to assemble it all by myself, which would have considerably worse results. AG1 saves me all the time and hassle, and it has made such a difference in my overall mood and especially my gut health, among many other things. But don't take my word for it. Go ahead and try AG1. Let me know what you think. Whether you notice you're needing more nutrient support than you're used to, or you just need an edge for a tough workout, AG1 can be the ticket. If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash the stacks. That's drinkag1.com slash the stacks. Check it out. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. 
See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. It's not lost on me, and I'm sure it's not lost on you, that you are someone who loves America so much and is deeply, feels deeply connected to so much of this country. And yet your professional career is like, you are Mr. (laughs) Non-American Sports Guy. And I just, I always laugh whenever I'm watching you. Like there was an interview you did with JJ Watt that was on TV. I can't remember what it was for, but it was like something. And you guys were both talking about football and he was talking about how much he loves soccer. And you were talking about like, you know, as Americans, both of us, this and that. And I turned to my husband and I was like, it's just great because he loves being American. He's such an American and everyone knows him for like the most Britishy thing we can think of. It's like you could only be more British to the rest of America if you were prince harry like it's just it always makes me laugh so hard the, the half brother yes exactly the other the other yeah, uh, roger uh, that's why your parents gave you a super british name that's yeah, no I, genuinely like i i say everyone always wants to know like what do you think of the royal family i'm always like i hate the royal family like, tracy chapman is the only queen that i recognize what about like, beyonce I kind of, you have to love uh, beyonce uh, if you're deeply God, american it's mandatory uh, you know, no, no, the way you said that made me think i was like ice we're gonna crash into my uh house and extradite me what about Beyonce, you're quite right. Put me in my bloody yeah, place. Yeah, don't forget. Uh, but but the, the royal family, the, I have no interest in any of that crap in in uh, in every regard. And that is very funny. I could really, I, I've not thought about that. The the only way I could be more bloody British, you're saying, is if I was like, here's the cricket. Yeah. Here's the latest cricket score. <laughs> I, and after the cricket, we're going to do the croquet. Uh, I, I, God, to me, I've got to be candid. There's another story of my life has been about the growth of the game of football here. While I've lived here, I moved here ahead of the 1994 World Cup, which was meant to put the sport just, you know, overnight. It was meant to be right. just a revolution. Um, and soccer was never like the yo-yo or the, or the pogo stick, an overnight sensation. But the joy of my life has been, or one of the joys of my life has been just the steady and slow growth of America to become what I now call a normal football nation. So I don't think of it. I've got to be candid. I don't think of like football at all as like, oh, it's, I'm binging over the English thing. <laughs> I actually think there's a incredible, young, vibrant, deeply knowledgeable, um, unbelievably. And JJ Watt's a great example of it. You know, tons of NBA stars uh, we have on the show. Josh Richardson, um, Alex Caruso, um Larry Nance these guys have fallen so bloody fast and hard for the sport in the past 5 years and I I don't think of it as an English uh, an Englishness I do I uh, we joke on the show that soccer is America's sport of the future as it has been since 1972 <laughs> but I got to say the the future the future very much is now I am a new soccer person um and I I'm obsessed with soccer now. I love it so much. Um, And I am curious what you think 
about why it never took off because now that I've gotten into it and I like have my team and I, you know, wait for the lineups to come out and all of that stuff. (laughs) I'm like, how come more Americans aren't obsessed with this? This is like the most incredible sport, like watching the fan bases and the chants, which I've missed out a lot on because of COVID because people weren't in the stadiums, but like all of every, I love sports, but everything about soccer, I love like soccer has started to push my love of basketball a little bit to the back burner. Like I was more interested in the Euro cup this year than I was in the NBA finals, though my team was out very early. So it sort of made it easier, but even still, I don't really have a team in the Euro. So it wasn't like, I was like, Oh, my other team is still in. So I'm curious. Who's your, who is your football team? Oh, Manchester City. I'm a huge Raheem Sterling fan. That's my guy. Um, I also love Phil Foden, one of our own. Um, And then, of course, Pep Guardiola is... My brother wanted me to ask you, why is Pep Guardiola the greatest soccer coach ever? And he answered it with, he just is. But... uh... (laughs) incredible. By the way, I I interviewed Pep Guardiola. He's a dream. He's so so intense. uh, But at the end of the interview, when he left, and it was amazing, he hates doing interviews. And um, this is a very intense human being. He's like a mad scientist who's taken, for those who don't know him, he's a ball bloke who has taken just the art of coaching, just just so many different levels above everybody mm-hmm. else. And he hates doing interviews and uh, didn't want to do the interview and looked at his shoe, which was a brilliant thing to do. When I asked the first question, he was, it was his way of saying, I'm going to do the interview, <laughs> but I'm going to give you no material whatsoever. And so he looked at his shoe. He hates doing interviews. He hates the English press because all they do is jam him up. Right. But obviously, I'm not the English press. And then I asked him my second question. I said to him, is football, is it like the NFL where you are Bill Parcells controlling the movement of every single human being at all times on that field? Or is it like incredible free jazz where the players essentially are just, it's just Coltrane and Mingus just just riffing, improving all the way through the 90 minutes. And his head snapped up mm-hmm. and he goes, that's a great question. <laughs> and then he just got so into it and just it just started shouting at me for 35 uh, minutes. A dream. A bit like I've, bit like I've done with you. Yeah. And I didn't quite understand anything he was saying. Mm-hmm. It was so fast and it was in a thick Spanish accent and I couldn't quite hear, but I knew it was incredible. <laughs> and I just kept going with it. And then boom, he was gone. And I was so exhausted, Tracy, after I'd finished with him. I just lay on the floor and went to sleep in the interview room. He's that (laughs) human being. He burnt me up with his intensity. He burnt me bloody up with his intensity. So your question was, why do Americans not, why did Americans not give a crap? Well, like, why Uh, didn't it become a big, why hasn't it become like a huge thing? It is big. It is, Tracy. You think it is? Women are world bloody champions. They're back to back world champions. They're unbelievable. If our men become half as good as them, we are, we are blessed. The, the, so, but the like American to... club teams are like they're small communities, oh, okay. but like oh, there's so... not it's not the same. You're, t- are you talking about the fan base. Are you talking about the yes, thousands the f- and I'm thousands and millions the of Tracy Thomases. <laughs> Listen to yourself. Listen to yourself. You just said to me, I can't believe how much I love it. The way you just said to me, Phil Foden, he's one of our own in your beautiful Oakland accent. Are you a Golden State Warriors fan? I am. Steve Kerr adores the football, loves the football, adores, uh, you know, Liverpool Football Club. He's regular on our show. It's, it's a, there is a young audience. Yeah. It's, um, so the question more is what has happened to change that? Because when I came mm-hmm. to America, it was shocking that football was not just not present. It was actively hated. You know, I remember mm-hmm. 1990 World Cup. I was a creepy English counsellor. 
on um, uh, on a summer camp in Maine, and England were in the World Cup semi-final. So I got a day off, and I, it was the most frustrating day off. I actually just saw in LA the guy I did it with for the first time in 25 years. Um, and we drove around. He was a South African, a wonderful man. And we desperately tried to find the semi-final of the World Cup, you know, the biggest game in the world. And we went from rural Maine sports bar to rural Maine sports bar, and none of them, they all refused to put it on because they're all playing the minor league Portland. I think they're now called the Sea Dogs. I don't know what they were back Oof. in the day. But they they were just they took great delight in telling us to sod off. And and it they I it was agonizing and oh, England lost on penalties, as they always do. And I didn't find out until the Boston Globe published a result in tiny font at the back of their sports page the next day. And that was where America was. Mm-hmm. And the reality is, instead of it being an overnight sensation, it's been slow and steady. There's been many factors that have driven its rise. Um, the rise of the internet, which means that you can connect from Los Angeles to your club, Manchester City, as close as a, a Mancunian who goes to every home game and lives within five minutes of the stadium. You can follow the injuries. You can follow the transfers. You can follow the intrigue. When I got here, we didn't have that. Right. And so there was a gulf of information. It's the perfect sport. Like the NFL was perfect for the golden age of television with its 57 camera angles and its breaks for commercials. Baseball, the golden age of radio. Football, global football is the great sport for the internet. Um, EA Sports, FIFA, the rise of that, which sensitized a generation of college kids, probably your brother amongst them, uh, to know the players, know that it's different to control Messi and Ronaldo. You get a sense of their different styles, know the teams, that Star Wars cantina worth of like, what's this Italian league? What's the Spanish thing? You get to right. understand all of that. And then mostly just how much is on television now? When I got here, there was nothing. Right. Now every bloody league is broadcast live. And, you know, I always joke that uh, part of it is, God, if you are in a bar at 7.30 in the morning and you are drinking a, a a beer and a scotch, you know, society frowns on that behavior. But if you're in that same bar drinking that same beer and scotch combo and Chelsea are playing Manchester City on the television, you are a football fan. Yes. And you should never underestimate the attraction Americans have. And it's fantastic for having excuses to raise a glass together. Yeah, I'm I'm so happy to be a soccer fan. I It's like my new favorite joy in life. I love it so much. I, we played yesterday, which is very exciting, which means we're coming. We're coming back. We're coming back. Um, you, you, you pick, by the way, Raheem Sterling, just to pick on the English sum up, um, is one of the greatest human beings. And I love that you love him. His story is just that he's still so bloody young. He's been around forever. But a lightning rod of just every, just because, you know, it's ultimately the joy of football is that it just holds a mirror to the society right. that surrounds it for good or for bad. And watching Raheem Sterling and the England national team yeah. this summer take a nation that is deeply divided um, and lecture it about racism, about sexual identity and gender, about mental health and depression, the young, confident diverse just i mean art- emotionally articulate right i mean the, the the manager the one of the guardian journalists wrote gareth southgate the manager uh, acts as if he is quote the last sane adult left in britain mm-hmm. which is bloody true if he was prime minister england would be scandinavia <laughs> and they made a nation believe and the nation got behind them and then in the final mm-hmm. it happened to be three black uh, kids really they were kids who missed the penalties and then you saw the darkness right. of the nation revealed 
um, the, the true darkness of the nation. And I will just say, Raheem Sterling, the other the other players, Marcus Rashford, an incredible poet warrior, um, uh, 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 Sancho uh, and, and Saka. I hope, I hope, because there's a battle going on in Britain right now for what the future of the country will look like. Will it look like the hate? And the misogyny and the racism that ended up being the the, the loudest voice in defeat because right. they only cheer these players when they're winning. Right. Uh, when they when they lose, the true nature of that side of Britain comes out. Right. Or will it be the side of Britain that the team represented? And Raheem Sterling, you picked like a true king. He's my guy. Uh, we in our family. My brother was the first soccer fan, and then he converted all of us, and so we all root for Manchester City because that's his team. But we, my listeners know this, but we all have nicknames for who we are. So I have twins, and so I, we call them um, Ezra De Bruyne, and then my son's Quinton, so we call him Quinchenko. Um, and because they, they're identical twins and, you know, uh, Kevin and, uh, as Zinchenko sort of look alike from a distance on the screen. Yes. <laughs> How old are you kids? They're 19 months. That's incredible. Yeah. Can I just say, I mean, I hope and I love your story. <laughs> to me, football is not about the winning, but it's a sense of meaning, the sense of uh, memory, uh, the sense of collective yeah. memory and the sense of, and the sense of connection that it offers people. And just to hear you talk about your brother, to hear you talk about your kids, to hear you talk about your family sharing yeah. that together. I, I hope football continues to provide that for you and yours for years. To I come. hope so, because my brother has purchased my kids jerseys until they're at least five with their names on them. So they're <laughs> going to have to fall in love with the sport. But what you were talking about before about Raheem Sterling and and the other black players, Saka, uh, Rashford and Sancho and what we saw in England, which is mirroring what we're seeing this week in America with um, with Simone Biles dropping out and sort of this vitriol against black athletes. And I know that in the English Premier League, they've really been trying to sort of be the face of this Black Lives Matter movement and really trying hard to embrace that. But it's interesting because there aren't any black managers in the English Premier League, at least not on the top flight teams. Or owners, or really any board. There's one or two, but very few board members. I mean, it's... Yeah, so like what gives? Like, do you see that happening? Do you see that there will be some sort of leadership that will embrace that too? Or do you think not so likely? Uh, you know, watching the, watching the fallout to the Simone Biles thing is just utterly humanly devastating. So we're talking at an awfully low moment in the, in just the, in just the culture wars that are just viscerating much of the joy of sport mm-hmm. um and all, all the oh god i mean just just appears more gamification of right of, of punditry and outrage and just general crap so you're catching that we're having this conversation at a low moment um for all of us look i mean i think that's the challenge for the premier league um which has had a which has had a tradition uh post black lives matter of taking the knee before the game right. Um, and there's a sense of when you talk to some of the players, they're like, hang on a minute. We've been doing this now for 14 months. And like, are we just doing this? Are they, it's like a theater or is there actually profound change that's going on? As you say, the, the, the number of managers is very, very, very Patrick Vieira, uh, Crystal Palace. There's very, very, very few. Um, I mean, it's more at the ownership level, the board level, uh, where, where money is made mm-hmm. in, uh, just like here, you know, Michael Jordan in the NBA, but there's not, you know, at the in the in the in the boardrooms in the in the exec suites, 
Um, that's where the real change needs to happen. And I, I cannot, um, I mean, I cannot answer the question of will it happen? Sure. All I can say is it's not, not close to happening. Um, it hasn't occurred. And the, one of the devastating stories of the summer was that all of this happened in, in an era of fanless sports. They took the knee. Uh, it was deeply meaningful. Um, when you talk to the players and you hear them articulate what they felt in that moment um, was, was, was human poetry. But the England national team was preparing to go for the Euros and fans were allowed back in the stadium for the, the practice games before the Euros for the first time. For the, so for the first time in like 15, 16 mm-hmm. months, diehard football fans returned to the stadium. And the first bloody thing they did when they got back into the stadium, England fans, to watch the England national team was boo the players, right. their own bloody players. Right. They booed them when they took the knee. And it was... I was like, that's what you were racing back. That's what you miss most. That's right. what you wanted to do. The first thing that you came back into the stadium is boo these guys, these gentlemen who are representing you. And it was it was devastating. And it was worse because it went on for 10 days. Instead of, you know, Gareth Southgate, this manager I'm telling you about, instead of, he's like um, he's like the, the, the Phoenix Suns manager. He's like Monty... Um, Williams, he's got yeah. A, yeah he's got deep emotional he's great i love issue, him right? he had a great answer about um if they were to have won if it would erase his loss when he was a player and he was like no because i'm teammates to people and i let those people down as well he that gareth southgate like monty williams has just deep emotional yeah. iq mm-hmm. deep emotional intelligence and he had to spend the 10 days going into the tournament that man should have been talking about lineups right. his first choices the depth oh, that's what managers are meant to do right. and instead he very patiently for 10 days for hours at a time had to give the entire press corps and the nation a lesson in identity racism um and uh, the power of 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 taking the knee and it was it was devastating to watch to be candid so the, the unfortunately the watch having gone through that summer and having gone through the output out the outcome tracy that i've just talked about I, if i was a betting man i'd say the answer is probably not it's going to take a lot a more time. bloody work in every way which is really sad um, I told you I would ask you about your book a little bit more, like the process. And, and it's something that I do with everyone. So we have to get you on record with some of these questions. Let's They're the it. most important questions to me personally. Um, so we have to do them, which is, and this is part the first most important question, which is how do you write? Where are you? How many hours a day? Do you have snacks and beverages? Do you listen to music? Do you have your Tracy Chapman going? What are your rituals? Like kind of set the scene for how you wrote this book. So I wrote this book in a fever dream. Okay. Um, COVID. I uh, go, go back, refer you back to my earlier answer. So COVID shut down the city. I was deprived of sports. Right. Sports shut down. I, I need to do things. Like I do believe life is a gift and I want to make the most of every moment. So I do I love work. I love working. I love working with my with my team. And then sports shut down. And I, um, you know, I'm fascinated by the Churchill War Rooms as a kid mm. in London. I've which been is, there. You have? Mm-hmm. Amazing. Yeah. So, you know, describe what it is. That it's you don't need me underground. To... It's where Churchill was like doing all his brainstorming and working and plotting for, during the war, during the Blitzkrieg, I think. Um, and yeah, the, the, the Battle of Britain yeah, and the Germans, when the were, Germans bombing the were bombing the crap out of London. And he was underground and there was all these like little rooms. It was almost like sort of 
like it's like an underground compound and there was like a room for the secretaries to be doing the morse code deep, and deep, like... deep, yeah deep, yeah deep deep underground There's, when london yeah. was being blown to crap exactly. and the whole of europe had fallen like churchill i've got to be candid deeply complicated yeah. human being so this is less about him but more about those war rooms like in times of human darkness i do believe like the true nature of human beings is revealed and when covid occurred i did what with my team i wanted to step up provide more meaning provide more content provide more joy more connection mm. um and so i threw myself into a variety of many many projects <laughs> most of them insane one of them was writing this book and i would write it every afternoon for four and a half months i'd just sit at my laptop having got through my you know i did a podcast a day churchill war room style i did a newsletter every morning um churchill war room style then in the afternoon i'd feverishly write this book madly um i went through about five laptops because i was really like in a movie like (laughs) typing like a mad person in a movie and i didn't go outside for there's a photo that posted of myself on my instagram the day the book went to number one and it was me stumbling out to see my wife my wife took it for the first time i'd been outside in four and a half months and like it's a, I look horrific. I've looked like Hank's era uh, in that, um, what was that movie where he's on the on the island with the beard and oh, the volleyball? Castaway. Uh, yeah, so it was like Castaway, Rog. <laughs> had the beard. My, uh, the most horrific part is like, is that like my arms are so white. They almost look translucent, like I look ill. And um, so that's how I wrote, like a madman. And I wrote because I had to, and you asked me about vulnerability. I didn't even think, what do I want to put in? What do I don't? What don't I want? I just went for it. Um, and that was it. When I look back on the book, I don't know how the hell I did it. To be honest, wow. I don't know. It, it wasn't. It wasn't a writer like yes, I like to rise early, light a a joystick, or incense, and uh, meditate for thirty minutes. Then I read poetry for twenty minutes, and then I write. Always twelve pages, good or bad. <laughs> um, I, I it was none of that. It was just like write because my God, I don't know what is going to happen. I've got to get this story out of me. Okay, you missed the important part of the question though. Snacks or beverages? Did you have any? I drink a lot of coffee, okay. a lot, a lot, a lot. <laughs> I'm I'm pretty pretty all in on the on the coffee. Okay. Um, and then God on the on the the snacks. I'm like so. I mean, I'm eighty seven percent cashew okay. products. Um, and then the music, I listen to music all the bloody time. So, I mean, the funny thing, I, I listen to a lot of Australian indie radio um, first thing in the morning. I listen to an amazing show on the radio station, Triple J, Home and Hosed, which plays every new Australian indie band that have released. And I'd, I'd talk about it. I'd published my favorite bands in the newsletter. I get all these Australian band managers being like, how do you know uh, my band? Uh, and I'd be like, um, I, what, what do you mean? They'd be like, no, like they've only had 12 listens in Australia and you're writing about them as if they're the Beatles. So I love my Australian indie music, uh, but I did make a playlist of all the tracks. Um, and it's actually in the book that I listened to in the 1980s because music was very actionable as a, like I could order cassettes from America. And so getting all that music together on one playlist in which Tracy Chapman, really features deep very 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 heavily that will get me through the rest of the day i love it okay my other very important question is what is a word you can never spell correctly on the first try oh my god there's so bloody many there's so (laughs) that's hilarious there's so many words that i'm just not comfortable with at all which is hilarious (laughs) same um oh my god um there what word can i never get right on the first try um 
Cincinnati oh, is the most humiliating of all. Yeah, but it's not okay. It's really not at this stage. It's not okay, and it's not willful. Um, <laughs> it's just that I do, I do actively try and get it right in every um, in every regard. But Cincinnati, no matter how conscious I am, it like stumps me every time, and it appalls me. Uh, and I want to say big shout out to skyline chili which is why i prefer to talk about the land of skyline chili which i can spell (laughs) although sometimes i spell chili wrong i do too as well i'm a (laughs) terror if there's too many consonants it's really it's fucks me up um okay last two questions for you one is for people who love your book reborn in the usa are there any books you might recommend to them that are in conversation or that you just feel like kind of have a similar vibe or that you just think they should read because you love them yeah, I mean, God, that, well, that last one is a long bloody answer. Okay. I can say, you know, I, I, I had three, um, I have three books around me while I wrote um, the whole bloody time, and one is uh, Fargo Rock City, okay, um, Chuck Klosterman's book, okay. which um, is to me like that. I remember reading that for the first time, and I don't know anything about the music, and it did, I, you know, I was not deeply moved by Ace Freely in any way, shape, or form, but the way he wrote it took you into that time and that place and made it live for you in a way that you didn't have to listen to the music or really know what he was talking about. He brought you there. And I thought that was very powerful. Um, There's the collective works of Audre Lorde, Mm. uh, which I genuinely love. And whenever I did get uh, stuck, I would, um, I would, I mean, a lot of poetry to be candid, I find really is so useful when you are exhausted, knackered and can't really spell Cincinnati properly. <laughs> it refocuses you just, it's just a, and her willingness to just, I mean, just really try and, uh, speak so powerfully to so many issues, so many complicated issues, I'm way ahead of her time, so many complicated, uh, intersecting identity issues and just speaking so succinctly and powerfully at the simply and powerfully at the same time thing like that was what i kept trying to work on being i mean i wouldn't compare my my, my work is at the bottom of the mountain audra lord is <laughs> it's not even top of the mountain she's like in the ether above the mountain but to to be simple and powerful um in your writing uh, to uh, to say things simply is something that i really try to work on then the other one is above my head at all times i always try and have him on television which is the the complete works of primo levy um who is my favorite author um of all time and um his essays just his willingness to articulate uh with true horror and true trauma the truth of humanity i actually called my fourth kid named him after uh after primo levy um and it's like that was like that was my wife's way of telling me that we were done she finally she finally <laughs> let me uh, uh let me let me do that but god love oh, those are great those are great um authors to include okay last one one person dead or alive to read this book who would you want it to be oh it's easy uh tracy chapman yeah in every regard every i mean there's not many questions that for me tracy chapman is not the answer not the answer to she is and i'm so happy that tracy chapman is now like back in vogue and in the ether and just truly respected for what she is which is i mean she is she's the just a true poet uh singular herself in every way vulnerable authentic um 
and that I've always talked about it on the show. Um, and when I started to talk about it, it was like in a time where you, I'd say it and people would laugh. Mm. But they they laughed when I loved her the first time. I, lo- I, I loved her. It's a big scene in the book. Yeah. One of my teachers, my mentor, my only great teacher uh, in a horrible school, he gave me her album um, before it became popular. And it was one of the few albums that I just fell in love with first listen. And uh, I used to play it for everybody that would listen. And people laughed at it uh, the first time I played it for them. So I couldn't give a crap about the laughing. And the reality, her story, which is ultimately deeply intertwined with mine, sadly, from a distance um, for me, because I think she's just an incredible, an incredible human being. The climax of the book with Liverpool turning into a pool of darkness was her becoming famous, uh, which she did overnight at the Nelson Mandela concert when Stevie Wonder was meant to headline, but his synthesizer blew up and the organizers threw on this unknown who played earlier in the day as filler because she could play an acoustic guitar. She didn't need electronics to perform. So in prime time, this unknown human being was flung back on stage in front of 72,000 drunk English people at <laughs> Wembley Stadium. And I was like, oh my God, what are they doing to her? I knew what my my fellow English people were capable of. They were going to tear her apart. They wanted to hear I just called to say I love right? you. And and she just, she looks terrible. You can see this on YouTube and I'd encourage you to. It's amazing. She stumbles on, she looks terrified, but she fires up the opening bars of Fast Car, oh. Fast Car, <laughs> and she draws mystical strength from her own wisdom. And line after line, she becomes more and more powerful. And she does just a second, and you can see where the Wembley turns from it. They were chanting for Stevie Wonder all the way through the opening of her song, and then it just stops. And suddenly she's got the audience in her hand, and she's turned Wembley as fast, open Wembley into the most intimate setting and she did it by speaking her honest joy, you know, her, about her pain, about her agony. Mm. And her message was, don't be passive. Um, if life is dark and challenging, you are not alone. Um, be prepared to make bold changes and get out while you can. Mm. And it's because of her, you know, singing that, that I am here. Um, and so long answer to your short question, <laughs> but my Lord. I mean, Tracy, she's the one, the guest I want to have on the show is Primo Levy, who sadly cannot come on our show. But Tracy Chapman is just the one interview that I would, if I could interview Tracy Chapman, that would be it. Would you retire after? Yeah. (laughs) America would be better off. And then then if I do retire, football, I I do think of myself as the last thing holding football back from going over the top (laughs) in America. Right, because you have the Raj curse. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, so that was once once I'm done. Once I'm done, football will just generally explode. Oh my gosh, and, no, God, we need amazing. you. I need you to explain everything to me. I'm always like, I don't get it. And then I'm like, let me go listen to what they have to say on Men and Blazers because I need help. <laughs> Tracy Thomas, you need no help. Your podcast is remarkable. You are amazing. Your story of your, your brother, uh, your own love affair with the game that's nascent, the, the twins is one that really is... It's all that's good about sports and life. So it's a joy to be oh, with you. Well, thank you. Um, this was so great. Everyone at home, go get Reborn in the USA by Roger Bennett. Not to be con- not to be confused with his <laughs> alter ego, Raj, his chill alter ego, but the real Roger, his mother's child. Uh, the book is out in the world. It's funny. It's got some emotion going on. It, as we talked about, lots of pop culture references um, and not so much soccer, believe it or not. So you can get to know the man behind the soccer. Raj, thank you so much for being here. 
Oh, Tracy Thomas, it's a total delight. Thank you for having me. Courage. Thank you. And everyone else, we will see you in the stacks. Thank you all for listening. And thank you to Raj for being my guest. I'd also like to thank Maureen Cole and Miranda Davis for making this interview possible. Our August book club pick is Emergency Contact by Mary H.K. Choi, which we will discuss on the show on Wednesday, August 25th with Juliet Littman. If you like what you hear, please consider supporting the show by going to patreon.com slash the stacks. Please make sure you're subscribed to the stacks wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you're listening through Apple podcasts, take a moment to leave us a rating and a review. For more from the show, follow us on social media at the stacks pod on Instagram and at the stacks pod underscore on Twitter and check out our website, thestackspodcast.com. Sebastian Alcala is our sound editor and producer. Our graphic designer is Robin McCrite, and our theme music is from Tagirages. The Stacks is created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas. Thank you.